0: Like many other rural or remote communities in Canada, homelessness is somewhat invisible in Lanark County, situated in the Canadian province of Ontario, but make no mistake, it's a problem for many here, especially the youth. Finding affordable housing for young people has always been a challenge, but one organization is trying to tackle that problem with an innovative solution, hoping to prove that a small size can have huge impact. Welcome to In the Business of Change, where we speak with social entrepreneurs impacting their communities and the world. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum, publisher and editor-in-chief of SeaChange Magazine. For those asking, yes, my book tour continues. Stay tuned for additional dates coming up this year. And you can find my book, also titled In the Business of Change, Profiling Social Entrepreneurs Around the World, at your local bookstore, at Amazon, or on our website. On today's episode, we speak with Terri Lee Kelford, board chair of Cornerstone Landing, a non-profit organization that provides assistance for homeless youth. She talks about the relentless issue of homelessness in her county and the difficulties in tackling it, which inspired the organization's latest project, the Building of Tiny Homes. An innovative solution to providing safe and affordable housing for the youth who need it most in the community, the project has its own challenges, which Terri shares. But that's not stopping her team from building small and dreaming big.
1: Uh, So Cornerstone Landing Youth Services was actually started uh, by a group of individuals in Perth, Ontario, which is... Uh, in Lanark County, a small town of about 6,000 people, but an hour west of Ottawa. And they were concerned about the gaps in services for folks who were experiencing homelessness in small towns. So they started uh, what was actually originally called Cornerstone Landing Emergency Residence, and they were exploring options for opening uh, a shelter. And so, at the time, there was also another group uh, in the community with the Transitions Action Coalition, which was which was a group of service providers who were focused on youth homelessness. And it was really the the coming together of those two groups um, mm-hmm. that resulted in Cornerstone Landing Youth Services. And uh, so we decided to refocus on youth specifically, as opposed to all ages, all genders. Okay. Um, and we also abandoned the notion of a shelter altogether. Um, and so we started looking at different models for being able to support uh, young people. So. So we support young people between the ages of 16 and 24, and we're now countywide, so we cover all of the county of Leonard County.
0: Oh, amazing. Okay. What sort of prompted... Uh, number one, the focusing on youth? Is it just because it's such an important, it, it's become so much more important and vital, uh, or, or serious, I should say. And the second day, uh, why less focus on shelters? So
1: I think part of it was just simply the expertise of the folks in those groups. So the Transitions Action Coalition members were actually specifically focused on youth. And okay. they were all members of social services that were supporting youth in the community anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the board members that were with uh, Cornerstone Landing emergency residents that remained with the group after the restructuring uh, were also youth-focused as well. So it just okay. made sense for us to kind of uh, focus our, our energies and our expertise on youth specifically. In saying that, we also know that a lot of uh, young people uh, were going without support up until January 1st of last year. Uh, kids at the age of 16 and 17-year-olds could not access the the services of a child welfare agency unless they were already in care. And so there was a real gap in services for these really young people, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 years old, who at the time had absolutely no supports. Um, hmm. There's no housing, no emergency residents, nothing. And the response at the time was to put them on a bus and ship them to Ottawa to a shelter. Um, and often there was no shelters available or they were given a bus ticket and so they had to figure out, having never been to a city before, how to get from the bus stop to the nearest shelter and hopefully access a bed, which is often first come first serve. So, um, so needless to say, you know, kids were either abandoned on the streets in Ottawa or uh, we had to go back and get them at some point. So. Um, so, and that kind of led into the conversation around shelters in general. So, right. um, in small communities like ours, Lanark County has an overall population of 68,000 people. However, we are divided into different townships and towns. And so, we have five very distinct uh, small communities, Perth, Carlton Place, and Falls, Almont and Lanark. And uh, so, for us, it, it was kind of a combination of issues. Uh, number one, practically speaking, uh, where would you put the shelter? So, if you were to open a shelter for young people, which town would you pick? And mm-hmm. if you pick one town, then you're left... Uh, moving kids around from town to town to town to access services and school and supports, right. um, and there's no transportation system in rural communities. so. Uh, and then uh, secondly, you know, the cost of shelters was just, uh, just ruled it out really as an option for us. Um, you know, we're really, even with Cornerstone Landing being around as long as we are and we support 75 to 85 kids, our our budget is always under $150,000 a year to do all of the work that we're doing. Um, and so just one minimum wage, 24 hour a day staff person in a shelter would cost about $150,000 a year. And that's not your actual capital cost. That's just one one staff person. So so the operating costs alone in shelters uh, make them almost irrelevant for, for rural communities. You just can't sustain them. So, um, so yeah, so there's a variety of reasons. Um, and what we found uh, once we started doing our work is that uh, housing first really was the way to go for us. Um, using scattered site housing, meaning that we used private housing in the towns that kids were from, allowed us more flexibility in terms of uh, meeting them where they were at and meeting their needs in their home community, keeping them connected to natural supports. Um, those things all just seemed to, to fit really well for us. And, and we've had really good results as a result.
0: Okay. Okay. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, one thing that obviously that we, that the focus that, that brought me to, to, uh, to you was the, the tiny homes project that you're, you're now you've introduced. Right. Um, could you tell us what inspired that uh, approach and did you hear about other similar projects anywhere else and, and, and their potential for impact? Yes, of course. So it was a it's a
1: concept that has evolved as well over time. So we, um, again, we're looking for some sort of emergency housing option for us in Leonard County, mm-hmm. um, although Housing First has worked uh, significantly for us and we've reduced youth homelessness in Leonard County by almost 70% as a result over the last four years. Nice. Um, we uh, still have a serious gap in our services uh, when it comes to emergency housing. So right now, if a young person, just this past winter, a couple months ago, um, a few months ago now, uh, a young person, I was called by a community agency and asking about housing for, an, for a young person, 17, and, and uh, the only options they were offered, um, the local children's aid society denied supports, uh, they wouldn't provide emergency housing, um, and uh, the county and the victim services that were set up as the after hours support would not offer a hotel room to 16 or 17 year old and so essentially you know this young person was offered uh, the streets that's it there's no Mm. option for them. so um, luckily that young person found a natural support a friend in town um, that they were able to stay with for a period of time but but ultimately we still have this massive gap in services in the sense that young people are still being left to to sleep outside so so for us we wanted to find a a model that was uh, unique to rural communities um, financially responsible for us and that we could sustain it and uh, at the same time but that that was something that we were concerned about working on and trying to figure out. Uh, We also were talking to our local Algonquin College Perth campus about uh, looking at having students build housing for us. Mm. And that was about two, three years ago as well. So unfortunately they ended up having to downsize some of their programs and Um, the construction program was one of them. So we weren't able to have students in the end build our tiny home, but but what they were able to do was to access a a grant for curriculum. Um, And uh, so we were able to partner with them to build what we call a tiny home prototype. So we built a tiny home on wheels. It's 196 square feet. It's like a bachelor slash hotel room on wheels, mm-hmm. um, it's got a bathroom, full bathroom, uh, washer dryer and uh, kitchen. The only thing we didn't put in it was an actual oven. Um, and so, and then it's got a shared living room bedroom space with a single bed that pulls out into a double and has drawers. So it's this beautiful little space. And, uh, the college was really focused on, um, you know, uh, smart environmental design mm-hmm. and, and lowering footprints when it comes to building, and we of course were focused on uh, challenging some of the uh, stig- or, sorry barriers that we heard and stigmas, I guess, stigmas and stereotypes to uh, tiny homes and, and tiny homes specifically on wheels. So, so we built this prototype, which was just finished in June, and uh, we've been on tour a little bit with it over the last few weeks, just taking it and showing it to the public and getting some feedback. So, uh, we're quite excited to get it off the ground. In terms of the actual program we want to run, we want to do uh, we want to put this tiny home onto a private homeowner's uh, property and consider it to be a secondary suite and then use it for housing for youth. Um, and so a contract would be signed with the homeowner to provide some semi-supervision and our housing caseworkers would be assigned to the young person to help them find long-term housing. Um, and so we have uh, had two people already step uh, step forward and offer to have it on their property so we're now just working with the municipalities to ensure that it meets bylaws.
0: Amazing. Do you have a stats on the rate of homelessness for youth in your region or any county? Or
1: yeah, for sure. So I mean, nationally speaking, we have a national crisis of homeless homelessness. So about 235,000 people a year across Canada, are estimated, and I believe the numbers around 35,000 of those are youth. Mm-hmm. Um, we know from research that the first episode of homelessness for many young people is uh, 12 and 13 years old, which is consistent with research we've done here in Lanark County as well. Um, we support our housing caseworkers support about. 75 to 80 young people a year, but, um, that's not all young people who've been homeless. We're doing a lot more prevention work now that we've had our staffing, uh, for a few years. So in other words, we'll have a young person who's, you know, 18 call us and say, you know, I have to move out of my apartment within, you know, 45 days. And can you help us find housing? So, mm-hmm. um, we were around, that young person was at risk of becoming homeless in 45 days. But now that we have housing caseworkers, we work with them to ensure that they've housing before they become homeless. So a lot more prevention-based work as well, for sure. Um, but we have uh, anywhere from, it's reduced quite a bit in Leonard County, but uh, you know, we might have, say, 10 kids a year who actually are presenting as homeless when they actually referred to us. Okay.
0: So most of them we catch before that now. Okay, okay, that's great. Um, I mean, that's great that you're doing all this work to, uh, to cut down. Um, and so, so you explained how the project works. Now, moving forward, what do you anticipate? Like, how many homes do you hope will be built? What's your goal? What's your objective with that? And you sort of need the other people to agree to have it on their property, don't you? Isn't that how it would be successful?
1: Yeah, we do for phase one. So we're, we're treating this as sort of a, a three-phase project. So okay. uh, phase one was to uh, build the prototype with Algonquin College, mm-hmm. uh, which we've done. Um, part B of that phase one <laughs> was to also approach each of our uh, local towns and municipalities to ask them to consider changes to their official plans and zoning bylaws to accommodate tiny homes Mm. or small homes. And so we also did that. Um, I started uh, over a year and a half ago actually going before uh, local councils to uh, talk to them about uh, planning issues. Um, And I also met with a group of our uh, local planners here as well to talk about um, planning implications for uh, small homes. And so then phase B or sorry, phase two will be to explore the options of of uh, um, having more than one of these uh, to use as a county-wide emergency housing response, because we want to put this one on the ground as the first one. Phase mm-hmm. uh, three, three of that, though, is to actually look at long-term affordable housing for young people by, by building a tiny home village. Um, and so over the next uh, six months to a year, we're going to be exploring options for properties that would allow us to put anywhere from three to six homes um, onto the property for long-term affordable housing.
0: Awesome. And so... Um you sort of already alluded to the some of the challenges I was going to ask you in getting this so is legislative change the, one of the bigger challenges or or what would you say are the challenges that you're facing It is yeah
1: there's there's lots of things in life I never thought I would become an expert <laughs> on and certainly I shouldn't I should not refer to myself as an expert on planning issues but I've certainly <laughs> learned a lot about it over the last uh, couple of years for sure uh yeah so one of the you know not only do we have a crisis of uh, homelessness in Canada we also have a national crisis of affordable housing right. and so there's you know there's a whole large group of people in Canada who are living, um, you know, check to check month to month and uh, are certainly spending well over 30% of their income on housing issues, which, you know, we consider to be the definition of affordable housing in Canada. So, uh, you know, tiny living is something that, uh, you know, we're not just interested in for youth housing. We've actually had people reach out to us um, who are concerned about veterans, who are concerned about seniors, Mm -hmm. uh, parents who have young people, you know, with disabilities that they know they're going to be supporting for years. So all kinds of groups have reached out to us. And part of it has been because, we have looked at the planning issues that stops all groups from uh, trying to use this type of housing. And so we really tried to look at the barriers and then address them one by one, which was part of the reason for this prototype. Uh, but, yeah, approaching the municipalities was really because we heard that there was uh, very simple roadblocks to building small housing of any sort. So the first one being that many municipalities have a minimum square footage requirement for single-family homes. And so if you, for example, the town of Smith Falls, I believe the minimum square footage is around 900 square feet. So you cannot build a house in that town that's under that square footage. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that just rules out, tiny homes to begin with. Yeah. Uh, the provincial legislation, uh, Province of Ontario, uh, recommends that all municipalities accommodate what are called secondary suites. And so in a Province of Ontario, they're recommending that municipalities allow homeowners to build not only a suite inside their house, but that they also be allowed to build one outside of their house. So in a separate detached location on the same property, you should be allowed to build a, a tiny home or apartment. Okay. And so they're doing that to, you know, the cities can use that for urban densification purposes, but also to increase the amount of affordable housing options for folks. So we also know based on research that young people are staying home uh, much longer in families. And so it also gives families another option too. If your 27 year old doesn't want to be in your basement, they could actually be in an apartment uh, outside, which is great.
0: Yeah.
1: So we were asking again our local municipalities to consider making those very simple updates, of which they should be doing, anyways, as far as I'm concerned. Um, And then the third one, which is a little more trickier for planning departments is to figure out how to allow more than one tiny home on a property and so that seems to be problematic even though we can have triplexes four and five we can't seem to have three tiny homes four tiny homes or five tiny homes on the same property so um how to word that and how to draft a bylaw around that seems to be quite complicated so uh, so that's the the hardest piece I think to figure out but the other two are very simple and all municipalities should be doing it, as far as I'm concerned
0: Yeah, I I would probably agree with that. Uh, Absolutely. And you said you've been on a little bit of a a tour with the current uh, Tiny Home. You you put it on wheels, uh, and the response to it, as you said, was was positive. Sounds like it's been positive.
1: We launched. We did a formal launch. We uh, stopped... uh, uh producing any public pictures of the tiny home for the last month or so as we were building it because we knew there was anticipation around people seeing it but so we did a formal launch in Perth at the Algonquin College campus uh, on July 24th and we Mm -hmm. invited the public to come did a ribbon cutting which was lovely I think we had about uh, between 60 and 70 people show up for that we had all the folks involved in the project we had Gordon Graff who's the architect uh, Mm -hmm. uh, Redwood Holmes who was the builder in the end and Algonquin and myself there to talk about the project nice and then after that, uh, just last week, we took it to the town of Smith Falls and the town of Carlton Place to do public showings there, and we had about another 90 people through there. So, uh, so the the response has been absolutely uh, supportive. Like I said, we've had so many groups reach out to us. I've been yeah. added to you know single senior retired women's groups who are looking for housing and. You know, parent support groups uh, for young people with disabilities and challenges. So, yeah, it's been uh, quite, a, quite a process in terms of um, the amount of people who uh, have been looking for housing. The, the heartbreaking ones are the stories you get from people. We've actually had calls from multiple people from around Ontario asking if they can live in a tiny home because they have no housing. So, mm. those are those are the heartbreaking ones for sure. Yeah.
0: I had heard about tiny homes before, and there's a few initiatives in the U.S. Have you studied any of those successful outcomes, or or any of the challenges that they've faced, and and how that has or given you some um, some things to think about.
1: Yeah, so there's a a great deal of uh, projects and uh, programs in the states that are operating in tiny homes and right. more of them coming up all the time. I, the majority of them, I get sing, sent links all the time from the public for, "Have you heard about this project? Have you Heard about this project?" <laughs> I, so I don't even have to do the work anymore; people just send them to me. But uh, unfortunately, in the states, though, a lot of the projects are in the south, and uh-huh. so in Canada, with our Canadian winters, a lot of the, um, right. the numbers that they produce around, "Oh, it costs twenty thousand dollars for this tiny home," I'm like, "Yep, and it would cost fifty here." Right. <laughs> Right. Uh, because of the winters and insulation and environmental issues and those sorts of things. So, and legislation. So,
0: right. What right. I
1: discovered when I started doing homework around tiny homes a couple of years ago was that uh, there's this real uh, popular trend around tiny homes. Obviously, you mentioned tiny homes, people get excited, but there was really a lot of uh, missing pieces in terms of the legislation. So, um, you know, tiny homes on wheels are essentially illegal in most places. So anybody who's managed to get a tiny home project on wheels off the ground, typically it's because they've done something specifically with that local municipality that allows them. Mm -hmm. Uh, In Ontario Building Code, uh, there's no way to make a, a house on wheels compliant with the Ontario Building Code. It has to be on a foundation. Um, and so it's really interesting to me that you see all these lovely little tiny homes everywhere and you'll see tiny home builders out there, yeah. but uh, often it falls to the homeowner to have to uh, fight it out individually with their municipality to, to typically do what's called a site-specific zoning amendment um, or they have to take it off the wheels and put it on a foundation to make it compliant. So, so part of what we're trying to do is to challenge some of those legislative pieces and I'm um, excited and honored to be uh, asked to come and speak with some of the planners with the Ministry of Municipal Affairs and Housing coming up in September. So, so I'm hoping to have an interesting conversation with them about uh, possibilities around planning recommendations. So, uh, but yeah, it's been it's been an interesting uh, road, <laughs> I'm sure.
0: Um, yeah. And and do your homes have to come with on wheels, or or because or is it possible for them not to? Or you'd like them to be uh, flexible or whatever, movable.
1: <laughs> yeah, we just for this one specific project, this emergency housing project, we wanted on wheels. When you we a long term affordable housing, we will put them on foundations for okay. sure. Okay. And part of the reason for that is just simply because we want to make them accessible as well. And so Ministry of Transportation restrictions. There's also the MTO you have to worry about when you build a tiny home on wheels. Only allows you to build to eight and a half feet wide. Um, so it limits your flexibility in terms of design uh, principles inside, so um, spacing and those sorts of things. So if we built them for long-term affordable housing, they would be on foundations and we'd be wider so we'd have more flexibility in terms of making them accessible. Um, but the ones on wheels that we want to build, it's simply because we want to put it on a private homeowner's lot and then in a year or two, if they don't want to do the emergency housing piece anymore, then we can move it to somebody else's lot. Mm, so, okay. uh, so we just want that flexibility to okay. be able to deal with us.
0: Yeah. So a lot more work. I I mean, you 've already done tremendous amount of work but i 'm just saying to get the all those things in place to be acceptable to be uh uh, within the you're hoping to make some policy changes what I'm saying is yes yeah. right yeah. and that's kind of an important part of the of this whole thing is okay.
1: We're hoping to make it easier for the next person that follows on yeah. our footsteps, yes. And yeah. and we definitely see, you know, to answer your earlier question, there's definitely been lots of tiny home projects uh, across the country pop up. So yeah. uh, we were really honored to have Dr. John Rook, who's uh, with the mustard seed program at West, mm-hmm. um, come to visit our tiny home at Algonquin College in Perth a few months ago. And uh he their partnering mustard seed is partnering with homes for Heroes, which is building a tiny oh. home village in Calgary and Edmonton for uh, homeless veterans. Right. Um, and so there's been some northern communities as well uh, start to look at um, tiny homes as a, as a homelessness option for folks. So uh, so they're, they're, sh- they're showing up for sure. It's the ones on wheels that are more complicated. Certainly most of the villages are focused on building tiny homes on foundations.
0: Okay, got it. And finally, just wanted to know how we can get involved. Like, how could people help support? Um, You know, I'm assuming you've made the argument as to why we should. It seems like it's a good uh, investment, a good you know something just worth supporting. Um, Obviously, can have great impact. So, yeah, um, I think. You know, I think in Canada, there's been
1: clearly a movement towards uh, the bigger is better philosophy when it comes to real estate. And I think for all kinds of reasons in Canada, we have people starting to look at smaller options um, and more affordable options. And certainly what limited research exists out there around tiny homes that, you know, shows that uh, tiny home owners are often living without mortgages, without debt. Uh, they live a more economical, affordable lifestyle to begin with. So um, so I think people are looking at them for those reasons. There's all kinds of environmental reasons why we should be looking at smaller footprints um, for building. And uh, so I think, you know, in general, without the housing crisis uh, issue, you know, we certainly should be looking at these as options. And if nothing else, it should simply be an option mm-hmm. uh, because to rule them out through a through planning legislation just seems completely irresponsible as far as I'm concerned. So, um, you know, we we do have people living in housing insecurity and we need to have all options on the table. I, you know, I say openly all the time, tiny homes are not going to solve homelessness in Canada, but they should be an affordable option that we're allowed to use um, uh, for any number of these groups. And so I've certainly said locally, you know, anybody who's not in support of this locally in Leonard County for youth is not just saying no to our youth. They're saying no to the seniors who've reached out to the parents supporting young people with disabilities to uh, veterans, you know, so Mm -hmm. this is an option that should be available to any of these groups, uh, any individuals in Canada, which is why we're trying to uh, take steps to make it accessible to any of these folks, not just uh, the population that we're concerned about. Right, absolutely. Um, to answer your question, then, for you know any of those folks, uh, one of the things we're saying is to make sure that uh, you let your local elected officials know that you are in support of tiny homes um, and that you would expect that, certainly in provinces like in Ontario where they're recommending that secondary suites be permitted, that uh, you know local municipalities update their official plans and zoning bylaws to ensure that these very simple steps that can be taken, like removing minimum square footage requirements for single-family homes and accommodating a secondary suites. Uh, should be adopted as soon as possible to allow people these affordable housing options in their communities. So so make yourself uh, vocal to, uh, like I said, your planning departments and your local elected officials to tell them that you want this type of housing available in your community.
0: Thank you for listening to In the Business of Change. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to hear other conversations with inspired social entrepreneurs and change makers working on challenges in their communities and across the globe. I'm your host, Elisa Birnbaum.